10, beginning in verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a, remain, a, a reminder rather of sins every year. For it is, is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offerings, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you do not, did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there, is no longer, there, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses of how much more worse punishment, do you suppose, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you, were, you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that, you, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little a while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe in the saving of the soul. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is so full of wealth. It is wealth in and of itself. It's spirit and it's life. You alone have the words of eternal life. We thank you that your word is, is preeminent, Lord, even above your own name, as your word says. We thank you, Lord, that you build our lives upon your word so amazingly and, and flawlessly. We want to be 
doers of your word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. We want to be further conformed into the image of your Son. We thank you that you work all things together for good, Lord, and that good that you reveal is for us to be conformed into Jesus' image. So would you use these verses to do that and, and use these verses in any way that you so choose to in our lives by your Spirit. We pray that he would be our teacher. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we're continuing uh, looking at this section of Scripture where the author of the, uh, the, of the book, By the Spirit, is, is, doing, is presenting an amazing case for the sufficiency of Jesus being our high priest, and specifically the amazing sufficiency of his shed blood. Because without his shed blood, that sacrifice, which was superior to any other sacrifice in the Old Testament and beyond anywhere else in any other context, that sacrifice is superior. And, and he's been laying into that. We've seen that. We saw that last week when we looked at chapter 9. He's going to continue on that this morning. He begins in verse 1 by saying, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. He's referring to the Old Covenant and those, those Old Testament sacrifices. Those sacrifices pointed to the ultimate sacrifice. They were never supposed to be venerated or respected or trusted in to, to the neglect of trusting in the ultimate sacrifice where God in human flesh came and he died on that cross and shed his blood for us to take away sins. It's never supposed to replace that. The Jews were supposed to see that. That's why God gave all those prophecies in the Old Testament, hundreds of them, and so many types and pictures and so many things that so when the, the Messiah came, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah came, that we would be able to look back in that amazing portrait in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit painted for us so that we could see this beautiful picture of Christ materialize before our eyes and, and say, just like John the Baptist did, here he is. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's supposed to be the testimony of every, every single human life in this world. To be able to say, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We know that that happens through revelation. Just like Peter had that revelation where the Lord Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who dwells in heaven. So he had the testimony and the revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said that confession, not Peter, not Peter, <laughs> that confession and the reality of Jesus being the Messiah and the Christ who, who, was, who was sent, who takes away the sin of the world, upon that confession, his, he's going to build his church. And the gates of hell will not be able to withstand the forward onslaught and, and, and offensive that the church uh, is engaged in. And so he says this old covenant, these, these sacrifices about which he's been speaking, were, were shadows. You ever seen a shadow? I see a pretty big shadow with me sometimes, but hopefully that shadow is getting smaller. But uh, sometimes I feel like, hey, there, you didn't hear about the eclipse today? I, I, I was out in the sun, you know. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, we, a shadow is, is so much inferior. Think about it. How much inferior is a shadow to the actual thing? It's, it's, it's only one-dimensional. And, and, and I don't even think it's two-dimensional. That shows you how much I know about dimensions. But uh, for sure it's not three-dimensional. And, and so the shadow is inferior, but you're never supposed to respect the shadow over the actual substance. And we're, we're told this in Colossians, where the, we're talking about the Sabbath and the new moons and all these things. These were a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is Christ. And so many people have a relationship, sadly, with a shadow. But all the things that were meant to point to Jesus, they're having an ongoing relationship with and they don't have the substance, and it's such a ripoff. The Jews today have a relationship, the Orthodox Jews, have a relationship with the shadow. They don't have the substance, and that breaks God's heart. Remember Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. He said, I've longed like a mother with her chicks, you know, just, I've longed to, to and he was just expressing this nurturing heart towards them, but you would not, not that you could not, you would not come to me. God's heart is to reach everybody. And so he's saying in this verse here that these, these Jewish believers who were contemplating going back, losing their confession, 
going back to Judaism, rejecting Christ, going back to the old sacrifices and so forth. He's saying that is so inferior to what you already have. And he says one of the reasons there in the middle of verse 1 where he says, which they offer continually year by year, and they, and they don't make those who approach perfect or complete. So you're incomplete, and that's why we refer to Jews as an incomplete Jew if they don't, haven't received Christ. And once they receive Christ, they're a completed Jew. And that's, that's an offense to them when they hear us say that. But it's the truth. That's what God would say. And, and, and so we need to have that message in our hearts and on our lips that these sacrifices that they did continually year by year, they don't make you complete. They don't make you perfect like he's going to talk about related to the Lord Jesus. Now, he provides evidence, evidence of this in verse 2. He says, for then would they not have ceased to be offered, talking about the Old Testament sacrifices, for the worshipers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sins. So he's saying, if those yearly sacrifices really did what God had intended related to the Messiah and what he would offer, then there would no, be no need for sacrifices every single year. Because we're going to see, as I mentioned last week, that he's talking about taking away sins now. And so if he took away sins, there wouldn't be any consciousness of sins. Not in their own life. They still knew that they were sinners. They still knew that they fell short and all that, just like we do. But there wouldn't be this consciousness of this sacrificial system going on year by year. Because these, these offerings were coming daily. I mean, he's going to get into that. The priests did their daily duties and so forth. That was a consciousness of the fact that these sins that they are having covered by the Lord weren't really being taken away. They were being rolled ahead every year. And the high priest would, would do that sacrifice and so forth on the Day of Atonement till they got to Christ on the cross. And then he paid for all those sins once and for all. So he's saying the evidence that these sins or these offerings rather could not bring those that approached perfect is that they had to do them every year. You know, and so that's, that's what he's, why he's saying Jesus' sacrifice and his high priest ministry and his shed blood is infinitely superior. Verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there is a remainder of sins every year. A reminder, rather. A reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Now, I talked about this last week. The Old Testament definition of atonement means to cover. The New Testament definition of atonement is to remove or take away. It's like when you're a kid and they, you, you get an assignment to uh, sweep the floor. And you think, you know, this is not too hard. I can do this. And you find ways to avoid having to use the dustpan. Oh, a dustpan. That's what that thing is for. I thought it was to hit my siblings with. It actually has a purpose to it. I'm supposed to sweep the dust up and the dirt up instead of putting it under the rug. That's what you do, right? When you're eight or nine and you're, you're like, yeah, yeah, this is fine. You know, no one's going to see this and you sweep it under the rug. And we kind of use that now as a metaphor in our culture that when we want to just hide something and not really deal with it substantively, we sweep it under the rug. And that's what kind of the picture is in the Old Testament. And it, it's by God's prescription. I mean, he's the one that set it up and it, it was for a purpose, but it was never supposed to be what the ultimate sacrifice was to accomplish and, and that's what these Hebrew believers were missing out on. And we can miss out on it. Because we can, and I mentioned this last week, we can treat our relationship with the Lord and how he sees our sin as if he's swept the, the sin under the rug, so to speak, but he still knows it's there. Like if, like if our parent knows that we swept it under the rug and, oh, I don't have time to deal with this right now. We'll deal with this later. And the parent knows. That, du that dust and that dirt is waiting there under that rug. And that child knows that the parent knows that. That's how we can live our Christian life when we don't understand the sufficiency of the blood of Christ and his sacrifice. We can treat that sacrifice as if, as if God has swept our sins under the rug. He still knows they're there. He still thinks about them every once in a while. And when we're having a bad day, he's really thinking about them. That's not, a, that's not the biblical definition of of, of atonement in the New Testament. And so I, I, I really believe God wants us to be set free, some of us, from thinking that God is still thinking about our sins. Do you still think about your sins? Do you agonize over them after you've asked forgiveness? That, that, that is absolutely, completely unnecessary. God doesn't want us to be agonizing over that which he's already forgiven. He says he's, he doesn't remember it any, anymore. He's tossed it in, into the sea. 
as far as the east is from the west, and, and he won't remember it against us anymore, so we're not supposed to remember it. And it can cause incredible damage in our hearts, and we're holding on to something that God has let go. And we kind of think that we, I mean, we don't go through this in our conscious thinking, but we're really having a higher standard, or at least an inappropriate standard, and we think that that is greater than what God's judgment is. That, you know, if he really knew what he was doing, he would be kind of holding this against me still. You know, but his word says he's taking it away. So I'm confronted with that reality. He does it as if it never happened. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that there's no dirt under a rug? There's no rug. There's no broom. There's nothing. There's nothing there. He's completely forgiven us of our sin. And, our, and because of that amazing preeminent sacrifice and his shed blood, he gave us the capacity to live a, a free life of peace between us and him. And if we have been robbed of that, we need to see things how God sees them and humble ourselves before his word and say, I believe what your word says, regardless of what my feelings say. Maybe that's a word for some of us here. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Now this this quotation is from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. And in this quote, Jesus is speaking here to the Father, prophetically here, regarding the insufficiency of those Old Testament sacrifices in light of what he would accomplish. That what he would accomplish would be far superior to, to that. And what's interesting about verse 7 is that, or actually before that, he says, uh, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. What does that mean? I mean, God set up the sacrificial system. It means that it didn't fully satisfy him in the, in the sense of what he ultimately wanted for mankind. Those rolled their, they rolled their sins ahead or they covered their sins for a time. But the, the fact that those sacrifices were still going on every year, every day, communicated that that ultimately didn't please God and what he had intended for mankind. But notice he says, but a body you have prepared for me. These sacrifices are from, you know, bulls and goats. There's something inferior, I mean, superior to those, Christ's body, that, that God has prepared in, in the sense of he would take on an additional nature. You know, G Jesus didn't stop being God when he came to earth. He just took on an additional nature. So now we went from one nature to two natures. So he has, a, a, the, you know, the, the, the deity, uh, his divine nature, but then he has a perfect human nature, not a sinful nature, but a perfect human nature. And he has a dual nature to his being now. And, and so he says, you have prepared this body. And so these sacrifices, you didn't ultimately have pleasure in what you wanted. But he says, behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me. And that's true of Jesus. Remember on the road to Emmaus, he has these disciples that were full of doubt. And he's cloaked somehow. Sorry for you Star Trek fans. You know, I didn't mean to conjure that up, uh, but he somehow the, affects their eyes or something where, you know, they, they don't recognize him and he walks them and it says he rebuked them for not believing God's word, not for rejecting what the women said. They, there's a higher standard that we're all called to, God's word. So we're called to believe what God's word says. And in, he said he opened, it says he opened up the scriptures to them all the way from the beginning to the end. Can you imagine having a message of that. And, and, and talked about himself there and how he was to suffer and to die and so forth. So he came, the whole volume of the book is written of him, but he says, notice, to do your will, O God. Christ was submitted to the will of God. You know, and, and the perfect picture of this would be the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Gethsemane means olive press. And there are olive trees there today that date back either to the time of Christ or close to it. And what a beautiful picture of him because he was pressed. And he, his will was uh, submitted to the Father's will. He didn't want to go through what he was about to go through. But he, he did it and he submitted to, to God's will and in submission to him. And we should do that too. Are we submitted to, to God's will? Even in, when we're being pressed? God calls us to that. He calls us to submit to difficulty in the context of his will because he knows what's best. In the faith movement, you know, where all this heresy goes out there teaching about, you know, we need to conjure up as much faith as we can and we end up having faith in our faith instead of faith in God. What takes greater faith? To have faith for something that you want that you think would be best 
or to trust God when you don't understand why he's allowing what he's allowing. I would submit to you that that's a greater faith. Job had that faith. That's why the faith teachers have to criticize Job, saying, oh, it's some negative confession. But we're told in the passage that Job sinned in none of those things that he had said. So there's an airtight case there. So he's speaking of offering his body, and it would be superior because it would be superior because it would take away sins forever, that which uh, bulls, the blood of bulls and goats could never accomplish. He says in verse 8, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Again, more submission. And then he says something that's a little bit hard to understand to see the context. He says, he takes away the first that he may establish the second. And I just, you know, because my crazy brain, I just think of Abbott and Costello. Who's on first? Who's on second? You know, and you get confused. And sometimes you can look at these and go, I don't know who's on first, who's on second. What does all this mean? He's talking, talking about taking away the first. In other words, the system of sacrifices. God has ended that so that he could establish the second, the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus laying down his body, which would take away sins versus only merely covering them up, sweeping them under the rug, so to speak. So that's what it's talking about. Verse 10, that by that will we have been sanctified, or by that will we, we will be sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So he says we have been sanctified. It happened through the fact that we received Christ. We're positionally holy, 100% righteous and holy in him. And because of that, um, we get to enjoy that relationship for all eternity. But it happens once and for all. We saw this, haven't we seen this repeat itself? Last chapter we saw it over and over again. Once and for all, once and for all, once and for all. So any religious system that says that Jesus has to die over and over again is, is lying. Because Jesus said once and, I mean his word says once for all. The repeated sacrifice, that already happened in the Old Testament with their sacrifices. God isn't into that anymore. He's not into the sacrifices being made over and over again. He wanted a once and for all sacrifice, and he came to accomplish it. So just think how much it offends him that anyone would say that Jesus died over and over and over and over again, even when you're holding up a Eucharist or whatever. He didn't die. He does not, he's not dying over and over and over again. He died once. And, and so we have to submit ourselves to what God's word says. It's very, very clear. Then he goes into what the priest did in verse 11. He said, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly, notice the word repeatedly, the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. Perfect description of the Old Testament priests. And it wasn't like it wasn't set up by God. God set this up. It was by his design. Again, there's nothing wrong with any of these things, but they had their purpose, and the purpose is past now. And they were tempted to go back. So every priest stands, notice the word stands. He stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But notice the contrast in verses 12 and 13. But this man, after he had offered one singular, one sacrifice for sins, notice, forever, sat down, and that's noteworthy, at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. So one sacrifice, no high priest ever was engaged in one sacrifice or one day of atonement, one Yom Kippur, sat down. No high priest ever sat down. There was no chairs, there was no couches, no lazy boy chairs, no little stools. Uh, I mean, nothing. There was nothing to sit down on in that tabernacle, in that temple on purpose because it was a picture of of the insufficiency of those sacrifices that would point to, because they were shadows, the ultimate fulfillment of those things in Jesus sacrificing once and for all so that our sins could be taken away. You need to see the link between sins being taken away and a once and for all sacrifice. They can't be taken away if, if it just keeps going and going like the Energizer Bunny. You know, so he, these, this writer saying, think about what you're doing, believers. Think about what you have. You have all these things that are better that I've been laying out for the last 10 chapters. You have this high priest with a better sacrifice, which gives you a better access to God and has a, a continuous daily ministry of interceding for you. And you're going to give that up for something that is inferior? 
And, and then, of course, we know that two or three years later, the, the temple was destroyed, like Jesus prophesied. So it was all going to end anyway, even though it was illegitimate from the day that that, that, uh, that uh, curtain was rent in two from the, from the top down, saying that man has access, don't need a priest anymore. You have one high priest. So then he says in verse 14, For by one offering, not multiple, not yearly, one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That's, it's an interesting verse here, because how can it be that we who are being sanctified have been perfected already? Because the word sanctify means to set apart. And so we're in the process of growing in our walk with the Lord, becoming more and more mature. So we're being sanctified in that sense. We, we become more and more like Christ all the time. So because of that, I'm, I'm looking more and more like the Lord and I'm sharing in his holiness, all these great things. That's happening for sure. But he says, because of that one offering, we've already been perfected forever. Well, how can we be sanctified or in this process of sanctification, but yet already be perfected? I believe this is a great picture of the two different types of holiness that we get to experience. One is positional and the other is practical. Positional, we're 100% holy in God's sight, positionally. Jesus' blood has been put to our account. And in, in that little accounting ledger in heaven, when you look up the, um, the Pat Verfurth file, uh, before I was a Christian, it was full of <laughs> expenses and debt and so forth. And then the blood of Jesus was applied to that. That whole debt or sin file, which was truckloads <laughs> deep, uh, was erased. And now when they see the credit column, it just says the righteousness of Christ. It's completely legal. It's a legal terminology. We're legally and positionally righteous and perfect forever. But then it says at the same time we're being sanctified. It's a, it's a beautiful description. But it happened by not multiple offerings. It happened by one offering. Verse 14. He continues in verse 15, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with, with them after those days, says the Lord. I want to continue, but I just want to give in a little decide here, detail. We see the deity of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. This is from Jeremiah. We see his personality because he says, for after he had spoken before, this is the Spirit speaking. It says he, a force isn't a he. The Holy Spirit is personality and deity because he says there at the end of verse 16, says the Lord. So you have the Holy Spirit speaking and you have him described as a he and saying that he's the Lord. So if you ever wonder where it is in the Old Testament where they could have known that the Holy Spirit was a he and that he is divine, there you have it. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. But where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. So no Old Testament high priest could ever uh, provide that, or no law could ever provide that. And he promised that made this promise through Jeremiah hundreds of years before, or after rather, that he gave the, the, the law of Moses. And he's saying, I want to do something superior. I'm going to do something better. I'm not just going to give them an external law that they should obey. I'm going to give them an eternal law. I'm going to write my law in their hearts. I'm going to do something better. I'm going to do a new covenant with them that's going to provide this. But that only could happen because of the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice. And that he shed his blood once. And that blood was superior to any blood that any goat or any bull could provide. And I love this when he says, I will remember no more. Isn't that the theme? Isn't that what we're talking about? The difference between atonement covering up or atonement taking away? Taking away sins makes it to where he doesn't remember it against us anymore. And then he says, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. In other words, when these have been taken away, what things? Their sins and their lawless deeds that he says in verse 17. Because remission means removal. So when there is removal of these things, sins and lawless deeds, then he says at the end of verse 18, there is no longer an offering for sin. There was no, we don't need to sacrifice over and over again every year because we have that once and for all offering. So it's a beautiful expression of God's provision. I want to talk about, before we move on, what, kind of along the lines of what I said earlier about not being able to get past that God freely, completely removes our sin. And he takes our sin away. 
we can struggle with that. And, it, and it's dangerous, and it hurts our walk with the Lord, and it, it impedes our growth in him. Sometimes you hear it being said this way, well, I can accept God's forgiveness, but I can't forgive myself. But the problem with that line of thinking is that part of accepting God's forgiveness is allowing yourself to be off the hook. Because if God, who are, who are we, honestly, who are we to let ourselves off the hook and, and God, I mean, not let ourselves off the hook, but God lets us off the hook. Just think that through a little bit. That we would have a higher standard for ourselves or a more just uh, standard for ourselves than God does. Part of accepting his forgiveness is forgiving yourself or letting yourself off the hook. It's, it's accepting that he really has forgiven you. And maybe that's going to set someone free here today. God isn't waiting for you to forgive yourself. And he doesn't tell you anywhere in the scriptures to forgive yourself. Anywhere. He doesn't tell you to love yourself either. You already do love yourself. And I already do love myself. That's the problem. We love ourselves too much. And so he doesn't tell us to do those things. Part of accepting his forgiveness and accepting that he really has taken our sins away is that we accept that and, and, and are, don't go there anymore with our minds. We don't have authority to forgive ourselves. Jesus said, who can, I mean, the, the, the Pharisees said, who can forgive, the only person that can forgive sins is God. And they were right about that theological statement. Jesus forgave. We can forgive one another what we do against one another. But we can't, for, we can't forgive ourselves between us and the Lord. We can't let ourselves off the hook between us and him. That he's the only one that forgives sins between us and him. So we have to accept that. So he wants us set free from all of that. It impedes our growth. It paralyzes our spiritual maturity and ministry opportunities and all these things that he wants us to grow in because we're stifled and, and held back and held captive to this, this, these past sins and these things that we can't get past. When he's gotten past them, he's let us off the hook. He's buried him into the sea. And we're still holding on to him. That's bondaged. He doesn't want that for us. He wants us to let those things go. Now, the writer gets to these powerful implications of Jesus' superior sacrifice. He says in verse 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. I just want to stop there. He wants us to have boldness. He's already said that, to come boldly to the throne of grace, right? And he says it again, having boldness to enter the holiest. And he just doesn't even say the, whole, the most holy place like they would say. He just says the holiest. He's talking about heaven. It's greater than any high priest could provide for us. To, to have us with boldness go into the, to this amazing sanctuary that we don't even know much about, that we see a little glimpse of starting in Revelation chapter 4. He wants us to have boldness. That boldness is impossible for someone that's on a year-by-year sin-covering relationship with him as the Jews were. It only makes it possible because our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek made that once and for all sacrifice and entered into the sanctuary on our behalf, passing through the heavens, that we could enter boldly into the throne of grace. But notice he says, by the blood of Jesus. There's no other blood that could make that happen. By a new and living way. Do you see that in verse 20? A new and living way. This is totally new. This is a new covenant. This is a new, I'm doing a new thing, says the Lord. This one of those things. A new, new wineskins, which he has consecrated for us. He has set those things aside for us to enter in. And you notice he says, through the veil, that is his flesh. The first veil was torn. His body was torn. And, and he provided that access. And at the same time his body was ultimately sacrificed, that veil was torn. That was pointing to Jesus' sacrifice. And because his flesh was sacrificed and torn, he was able to provide that access that we always were supposed to have with the Lord. And, and that's a beautiful thing. And he says, and having a high priest over the house of God. He's talking about heaven. So we're entering into the house of God by faith, because of the confidence we have, because of the sufficiency of Christ's blood put to our account. Now, he's going to tell us to do some things in verses 22 through 24. And we're going to see it by the repeating words, let us. It's going to happen three times that we're going to see it. And remember, all these commands and all these things that we're supposed to do are a direct result of Jesus' superior sacrifice. 
that blood and goats, or blood and goats, bulls and goats of blood could never accomplish for us. And the first one is verse 22. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Is that a description of someone who is seeing their sin swept under a rug? No. That's not a description of someone like that. It's describing a person who knows their sins have been taken away. That's the only way that we can draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Because we wouldn't have assurance of faith if we know that God's holding on to the remembrance of our sin before him. Having our hearts sprinkled. I love that. This is all a picture of a priestly duty. Sprinkling blood. Look, do you see the verbiage here? Sprinkled from an evil conscience. I'm glad he tells us the truth about ourselves. Uh, What are you really trying to say, Lord? Uh, From an evil conscience and our bodies. This is all talking about a living sacrifice. In Romans chapter 12, we're called a living sacrifice, a burnt offering, a once and for all burnt offering before the Lord, washed with pure water. They would wash the offerings, so forth. And then he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Wow. Isn't that what he's been saying all along to these believers? Hold fast to your confession. Don't deny the Lord Jesus Don't go back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's never been an issue about sin directly. Sin deceives our hearts. And if we don't repent, it hardens our hearts. And we can get to the point where we lose our confession of hope. But he says, don't do that. Don't waver. But the solution is not to just try harder. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. It's going to the Lord. Drawing near to him. He knows that that's the solution. That's how it happens. To have a true heart and full assurance happens through approaching the Lord because we know it's a throne room of grace that's been paved, the the way to it has been paved with love through a, a sufficient and superior sacrifice. And it's a beautiful expression of God's provision. Now in the third little set of Uh, the third let us so to speak in verse 24 he says and let us that's the third time we we see it let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching you may remember how often I bring it up before us and exhort my own heart that church and when we come together as God's people, it's supremely for God and it's supremely for others. Yes, God wants us blessed. He, has, he wants us to be made into disciples, but that happens not by us focusing on ourselves. That happens by us focusing on God and others, and through that, he produces fruit and maturity in my life. Not hoarding God's resources on myself and focusing on myself. That's a Western idea. That's a consumer mentality creeping into the church. It's not all about us. It's about God and it's about others. And when we focus on others, then we start to grow spiritually as a secondary or an implication of of a biblical focus among God's people. Well, here we see it here. We see it beautifully articulated. Now, we focus on verse 25, don't we? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together in the manner of some... We can rattle it off so fast, someone actually may say... I'll I'll buy that or sold, you know, and think it's an auction or something. But we rarely quote verse 24 with it. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. That's the whole purpose of when we come together is focusing on others. And what we need to see is that it's a picture of a fire. You know, if you ever stoked a fire, I'm not good with fires. Don't ever trust me with a fire. It will be, I mean, Smokey the Bear uh, chases me down. Uh, but when you stoke a fire, it makes that fire grow. And that's the picture for us in prayer. That's why we've been going deeper in prayer. He's stoking the fire in us as we seek him and seek his face. But when he says, stir up love and good works, I want you to picture the stoking of a fire. Stirring up. Stirring up people's love and stirring up their good works. And then he says, but exhort one another. That's hard to do. It's hard to exhort people in love, at least in a biblical way. It's easy to bust people. 
You're breaking the Holy Bible penal code, and I'm here to tell you that, and you're in trouble, and you are... That's not what exhortation is. Exhortation is not only, okay, you may need help and you may need, you know, to do, obey God's word, but it's also you can obey God's word. I want to encourage you. It's not just being the sin police at all. We make a lousy Holy Spirit. I don't know if you ever noticed that, but it's like you can do this. Yes, you're not measuring up. I'm not measuring up, but let's do this together. I'm going to pray for you. And it's an, you can obey God's word. He's given you all things that pertain to life and godliness. Won't he freely give us all things? He hasn't held anything back from us. I mean, it's, a, it's an encouragement to them. But he says to do it more and more. Wow, more and more? I do it less and less. And he's saying do it more and more as you see the day approaching. What day? When he comes. But see, all of that has to happen or, or it, it necessitates us to be among one another. And that's why he says, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together as in the manner of some. Now, some of you are coming from a legalistic background where someone has damaged you and gone beyond just biblical loving exhortation, encouraging you to be faithful among God's people. And I understand that. So when, you, when we get to a verse like this, you're bracing, to, you're bracing for it. And I'm not here to hit you over the head. He didn't call me to beat the sheep. He's called me to feed the sheep and love the sheep. Um, he didn't say, Peter, if you love me, beat my sheep. Some people, you'd think that, uh, you'd think that some people... Uh, had heard that from the Lord, but he's, he's saying, encourage, and, and so when, but that doesn't mean that we can't be exhorted, and I do it in love, but especially if we have kids, and we let all these things get in the way of being faithful among God's people, so many problems would be taken care of, so many revelations from God, and just what I need to hear would happen if I would just be faithful among God's people. When I go on vacation, it's great to go to church somewhere, you don't take a vacation from God. You take a vacation from your work, you know? And, and, and so there's all these situations, and I know things come up. I know things happen. I know we get sick. I know there's such a thing as vacations. But in this culture, leaders are not teaching the Word of God so often and letting people know what the standard is. The standard is faithfulness, not perfection. None of us are perfect. So we have to be faithful among God's people. It means it's going to cost us something. We may have to tell the coach for the kids, you know, I know it's the beginning of the season and we're not even close to the championships at the end, but we don't do anything on Sundays. But, I mean, if you have games in the afternoon and we can make it, great. But we, we, we are among God's people on Sundays. Oh, I understand. That's great. You know, what's that tell our kids? It tells our kids how important that is. So when they get older, are we going to see them following our footsteps. I mean, they're only going to do what they see us, most likely. So it's not a, like punching my time card in and people busting us if we, you know, are not perfect or anything like that. But God has provided the, the body of Christ for us to grow and to become disciples. And we have to be faithful and consistent and not just let anything get in the way. You know, when our, if we're married and we have children, if our kids are sick and our spouse doesn't need us, what are we doing staying home? We need to be among God's people. I mean, what, what is it, I mean if, if their kids are sick and it needs two parents, great. Stay home and take care of your kids. But if, if, you're, if you, one parent can do that, then the other person needs to be faithful among God's people. And that, this is like not a big revelation for the New Testament church. It's like a given. I mean, when you're under persecution and when you're under difficulty, your lifeblood is that church. You can't get enough of them. You need them. The, the church in China, do you think that they're figuring out if they're going to go to church or not. They're desperate for God because they're going through what we're going through. We're not any less dependent upon the Lord in our prosperity. In reality, we're not any less dependent upon him. We're just as needy as they are. We may not feel like it, but we are. So God's called us to be faithful, and we cannot get upset with our kids if they grow to be adults. If they're not faithful, if they never saw us be faithful, that's just a fact in every area of our life, in our devotions, never hear us pray, they never hear us see us read our Bible, they never see us share our faith, what do we expect them to do? They're never going to do it. Apart from God compensating graciously and, and, you know, working in spite of us, but we don't want the Lord to have to work in spite of ourselves. So be among God's people. The summertime, you know, we're starting the summertime, it gets nice weather. It doesn't mean that we stop serving the Lord. It doesn't mean that we stop being faithful. I know there's special events. I know things come up. No one's going to be asking you things and busting you, trust me. But we still continue to serve the Lord when it's nice weather. 
<laughs> you know, it doesn't, it doesn't get all of a sudden now the kingdom of God is more needy now in November because the weather changes. You know, the, the kingdom of God wants us to be a part of the things that he's doing through our lives all times of the year. And so I'm not trying to get on a soapbox, but I'm just saying I see people suffer as a result of not being faithful. I'm not here because I get paid. I'm here because God's called me to be here, and, and I, I wanted to be faithful before I was a pastor and all those things, and God blessed that in my life. In part, why he's blessed me the way he's blessed me is because he convicted me so much and said, come on, get faithful, do something, be consistent. And, and he was very gracious to do that, probably a lot more gracious than other people around me at the time, but I'm thankful for it. Now, the rest of the chapter, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on. You're wondering how we're going to go through that many verses. But we've covered apostasy in chapter 6. And if you weren't here, I'd recommend you uh, downloading it from our website or listening to it at our website when we talked about apostasy. But just because it was already covered doesn't mean that these are wasted verses. God doesn't have filler. (laughs) You know, some of the food that we eat is like there's filler in it to fill space. God doesn't do that. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Every jot and tittle is inspired. So there's a reason why it's here, but we're just not going to be able to focus it in, on it in depth because we covered a lot of this already. But he says, he begins this warning section in verses 26 through 39. He says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there, is no long, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law, and that did happen, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more, how much worse punishment do you suppose we will, we, uh, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, countered the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and again the Lord will judge his people it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So he's warning them again. Don't, because he just got done saying, hold fast your confession. All these, are, all the, what this is talking about is talking about those not holding fast their confession and rejecting Christ. That's what he's talking about. And unless people think that we're talking about unbelievers here, look at in the middle of verse 29. He says, who counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, past tense, a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace. And then the end of verse 30 says, the Lord will judge unbelievers? No, his people. And then he's going to get into some other things uh, in the remaining verses. But if a person rejects Christ, and as I said when we looked at the study in in Hebrews chapter 6, if a person willfully rejects Christ over and over again and they die in that condition, there's, there's such a thing as apostasy. And, and it's not a common thing. It's not an easy thing to have happen. And like I said, when we looked at Hebrews 6, if, if forfeiting or rejecting Christ or, or uh, leaving my salvation is equivalent to going to San Diego in a car, I'm not worried about ending up in San Diego tomorrow. I mean, I have to go a long ways through a lot of roadblocks and God trying to get in the way of stopping me from getting there, but I'm not, it's not a fragile thing. I'm not worried about it. But he does leave room for people to choose to not be, a, be his child. I mean, he does. It's, a, it's adoption, and we can reject that. Now, again, there's other positions, obviously, in the body of Christ. They usually don't have an issue with this position because I'm not saying that sin directly does it. When you teach that sin directly does it, now you're causing damage because that, that undermines the atonement of Jesus Christ. But God has always required that we maintain faith. And all the, most of the verbs and, and participles in the book of John where they quote, he crossed over from death to life, he will not be condemned, I'll raise him up on the last day, and all those belief scriptures, who believes in me, will not perish, those are present tense verbs. We need to keep believing, keep holding fast. The whole book of Hebrews is about these Hebrew believers holding fast to their faith and holding fast to their confession. We've seen it over and over again. So he says in verse 32, But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, again, more evidence that they were Christians, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. What what unbelievers experience persecution? doesn't happen, okay? Partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. So they were suffering these things, and they were in, and standing with those that suffer these things. We need to stand with the persecuted church. 
We need to know about those that are being uh, mistreated, like that pastor in Iran and these other ones that we hear about. We need to stand with them and pray for our brothers and sisters. For you had compassion on me and my chains. So this writer was persecuted and he was imprisoned and they, and they had compassion on him and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. It's more persecution. Knowing that you have a better, there's our word better from our book over and over again, better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence. That's, their, that's the, the, point about, the point that I'm making about denying your faith, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance so that you, after you have done the will of God, which is a difficult uh, uh, calling. They're being persecuted now. That's why they were being tempted to turn back. So he says, yeah, the will of God can include suffering. After you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. This is talking about the promise of getting a new body, being in heaven, being in his physical presence with a glorified body. For yet a little while, and he who, come, who is coming will come and not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are, are not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving of the soul, talking about the deliverance of the soul to heaven in our new bodies. Now, real quick before we close, verse 26 has caused a lot of havoc among God's people in, in, in life because they, we sin willfully. I mean, most of the time when we sin, it's willfully. Most of it is not, oh, wow, I'm going 150 on the freeway in a, in a 30 mile an hour zone. Uh, Usually, you know, I mean, there's sins that we commit that, you know, that, that, that we don't even know that sin until after we do it and we do it accidentally. Most sins are we do it willfully. So, that, so the question is, well, I've done sin willfully, so am I a part of this? No, because this is talking about apostasy. If you're worried about committing apostasy, you haven't committed apostasy because the heart of an apostate is indifference. You don't believe any of it. You're not worried about any of it because to, to you, it's all a, a, you've been so deceived that it, be, it becomes a, a fantasy and you deny Christ's death. Many deny that he even lived. You deny the whole thing and you're not worried about it one bit. So the enemy takes a verse and he takes it out of context and he causes havoc. Uh, and there's other verses that, that he uses too. He knows the word of God, that's for sure. Just doesn't have, have any faith or capacity to believe it. So this is not talking about believers struggling and because I'm struggling in a certain sin, now, you know, there's no hope for me. There's no sacrifice for sins. This is talking about a willful rejection and denial of the Lord in, in unconfessed uh, sin or a process of being uh, unrepentant for the, for the remainder of your life and then you die in that condition. That's how you can, a person can know for sure if they've reached that point. And so that's not you. So don't worry about that verse. So I just wanted to bring some clarity for that to help. But it, it lines up in context with chapter 6 that God will honor our choice. He doesn't take away our free will once we become a Christian. If he did, then we wouldn't even sin after that. You think he wants us to sin? No. So if he's going to take away our will, he'd take away all of our will. And we wouldn't sin any, anymore at all. And we'd be robots. When we get our bodies in heaven, we're not going to sin. And it doesn't mean that we're not going to have a choice. He says that we won't sin. He doesn't say that we can't sin. We're, are we going to get our new bodies and we're not going to sin? But the value of worship and the value of belief and the value of love is based on a choice. So just because we get a new heavenly body doesn't mean he takes away our choice because it would take away the value of our worship and our love for him and one another. But we just won't go down that road. I mean, Satan was Lucifer. He, he chose he didn't have a sinful nature, and he chose. So the value of our, our will is still intact, even in our relationship with him after we know the Lord. Now, I know that, again, there's believers that disagree with that. That's fine. There's Calvary Chapel pastors that disagree on that. There's freedom. This is not, a non, this is not an essential of the Christian faith. I'm not messing with the atonement of Christ. This is just about apostasy here. And so I just, I can't do justice to the verses if I don't see these as believers and I don't see this as them losing their faith and denying Christ. I just, you just have to cut up Hebrews and make it a big mess to try to do the mental gymnastics to make it fit into a one saved, always saved position. I just, I can't do it. I, I'm willing to do it. I mean, I'm willing to believe the other way if it was there, but I just have to, you know, balance scripture with scripture. 
And so that's the best I can do with it. But I'm excited about Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And I just pray you'd encourage all of us, Lord, that you're faithful and you're Your atonement that you accomplished for us removes sin completely out of the way. And if there's any here that's struggling with their past failures, Lord, even though they've asked for forgiveness, I pray, Lord, that they'd fully accept your forgiveness by letting themselves be off the hook because you let them off the hook. And I pray you'd set them free from that. I pray they would, just like you, Lord, I pray that they wouldn't remember their sins anymore and they'd have your mind, the mind of Christ, in in total unity. So I pray, Lord, you give us confidence, Lord. Thank you for the great sufficiency of your sacrifice and your blood that takes away sin and the superior sanctuary and the superior approach that we have to you that the Old Testament saints could never dream of. We can come boldly, and Lord, help us to come boldly regularly, knowing that it is a throne of grace, knowing that you are a merciful high priest that's interceding for us. Help us, Lord, to approach you so often, Lord, that people don't even recognize us anymore, that we just become completely an image of you and your character. We thank you for the privilege of looking into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we do on the first Sunday of the month, we want to enjoy communion together. And what a, what a great Sunday to think about the, the shed blood of Christ and his body that was given for us, looking at him being such a great high priest and sacrificing that great uh, shed blood on our behalf. So, There's so many different places based on all the verses that we looked at where the Lord could take our hearts. But he offered that that body for us and gave it willingly. He said, no man takes my life, but I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I can take it up again. And And he did. And so he gave that sacrifice for us. Let's worship him for that and see where the Spirit might take our hearts. Let's do that now. Oh, oh. 
done so much for us.